On January 15, 2022, a massive eruption of the Hungatunga volcano occurred, sending literal shockwaves around the globe and releasing millions of tons of material into the atmosphere. This eruption was unprecedented in the modern satellite era in terms of how much water vapor was injected into the stratosphere and just how far into the stratosphere it penetrated. Here to talk about the impacts of the eruption on the stratosphere and maybe the weather is Dr. David Wilmoth. David, thank you so much for being with us today on Weather Geeks. Glad to have you. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm going to run through a little bit of your background in a moment. But first, I want to ask you the question that we ask every guest on Weather Geeks, which is, how did you become a weather geek? Or maybe in this geek, it's in this case, it's an atmospheric chemistry geek question. <laughs> well, I actually grew up on a farm down in Southern Virginia. And I, I remember the first time really as a young kid thinking about weather and how it impacted our lives is because my dad would always pay very careful attention to the weather whenever he was going to cut the hay. Because when you cut the hay, you don't want to have it rain before you have a chance to rake and bale it and get it up out of the field. So as a young kid on a farm, I remember thinking about the weather. And of course, we didn't get too many snow days down there, but always rooted for those <laughs> as a kid in school. But I, it, it wasn't probably until I was a teenager until I started thinking a little bit more about weather in a scientific way. The ozone hole was big news back then. And uh, you know, more than just in the scientific community, you were seeing it on the local news and the newspaper and the press. So, uh, and then fast forward a little bit to graduate school, I had a chance to work with uh, Jim Anderson at Harvard, who's one of the pioneers in building instruments to fly on aircraft and balloons to sample the stratosphere and look at molecules that impact stratospheric ozone loss. So uh, the history of the group actually was uh, making the original CLO measurement, chlorine monoxide, that clearly linked chlorine to ozone loss in Antarctica. And it was called the smoking gun plot because you could so clearly see that when CLO was high, ozone was low. And so um, that's what I did in graduate school. And I stayed on at Harvard after that. And I've been here a scientist for a couple of decades. And uh, my work involves, as you said, it's not so much weather, it's more chemistry in the stratosphere. So we do lab work, we do uh, field projects, build instruments to fly on NASA airplanes, and we do a little modeling as well to help us better understand Earth's stratosphere. All very cool. And I, I did kind of hear in the beginning of that, that you are truly a weather geek at heart. So um, <laughs> glad, glad to have you on the show. Uh, I, let me go through your background um, because it's quite extensive. And David Wilmoth received his BS, summa cum laude, in chemistry from the College of William and Mary in 1996, and then PhD in physical chemistry from Harvard in 2002. Uh, you hold a research scientist position at Harvard University with area of research in atmospheric chemistry with particular focus on photochemistry and catalysis in the stratosphere. His research bridges work in laboratory studies, field experiments, and atmospheric modeling. He's been the principal investigator on NASA and NSF grants covering topics that range from laboratory kinetics and spectroscopy to aircraft field measurements of halogen radicals and water vapor to the impact of volcanic eruptions on stratospheric chemistry and ozone, which is why we are here today. And Dr. Wilmoth is an invited member of the NASA panel for data evaluation, which evaluates laboratory kinetics and spectroscopic data and uh, periodically periodically publishes the highly cited JPL 
Compendium, Chemical Kinetics and Photochemical Data for Use in Atmospheric Studies. So obviously we have come right to the source on this one. Um, and glad to have you. I, let's get right into it. The the Hunga Volcano, which uh, we're going to shorten the name to just Hunga, sure. you know, was just such a spectacle when it comes to the satellite presentation, um, basically the shockwave that was felt around the globe. So give us an overview for everyone listening of where it happened, when it happened, and just how intense was it? Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the volcano itself happened at, at around 20 degrees south latitude and 175 west longitude. So that's out in the middle of the South Pacific Ocean. So a couple of landmarks to help people visualize where it is. It's about 2,000 miles east of Australia, about 3,000 miles south and west of Hawaii. And maybe the closest thing people will be familiar with is Fiji. It's about 200 miles from Fiji. Um, so there's some islands out that way, but no large land masses. So that's where the volcano eruption happened. It erupted over a period of several weeks on and off, but the, the big eruption, the one that everyone's talking about, was January 15th of 2022. And just an absolutely incredibly powerful eruption. It's the largest ever recorded uh, by modern instrumentation. Uh, more powerful than any nuclear bomb that's ever been tested. Uh, hundreds of times more powerful than any uh, bomb dropped in World War II. So just really tremendous amount of power. It triggered tsunamis. Uh, there were reports of waves up to potentially even 150 feet high, which is mind-boggling to think about uh, a wave that large. Uh, it, as you said, it produced a shock wave uh, felt around the world. There were reports of people hearing the sound of this eruption even thousands of miles away. Um, it also had really intense lightning. It's probably the most intense uh, lightning uh, spectacle ever observed uh, on Earth. Uh, it was really sort of a supercharged thunderstorm. There were thousands of lightning strikes per minute uh, when this thing was erupting. And then uh, more relevant to why I got involved in studying it is because of the impact it had on the stratosphere. So the volcano, uh, when it erupted, it launched uh, SO2, which we normally think of for volcanic eruptions, into the stratosphere. But uh, what was really unusual was the tremendous amount of water that got injected into the stratosphere. Uh, so the reason it injected so much water is because the volcano, the caldera part of the volcano was under the ocean. It was an undersea eruption. And so when it erupted, it, it launched lots of seawater with it into the stratosphere. And as it turns out, it, it was probably a, right about the sweet spot in terms of depth. Because you can imagine if the volcano was just a little bit under the water, Sure, it could have launched the water high, but it wouldn't have been that much. And if the volcano had been deeper, there would have been more water vapor potentially to inject, but the pressure of all that water from the ocean would have been too much to launch it as high. So it, at the depth that it was, about 150 meters, as I said, it turns out it was sort of a sweet spot with getting that tremendous amount of water and being able to get it so high. So the, yeah. the peak altitude where we saw the biggest impact in the stratosphere was about 26 kilometers up in the air. Uh, and that's just extremely high. That's deep into the, the, the middle part of the stratosphere. And the amount that was injected was uh, estimated to be around 145 teragrams. So to, to put that unit in context, a teragram is a trillion grams. So it's 145 trillion grams. To convert that into a unit people might be more familiar with, it's about 300 billion pounds. 
of water. And so uh, if you think about uh, in terms of how many Olympic-sized swimming pools you'd have to fill, it's about 58,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools full of water got injected. Another way to think about it is like a Honda Civic weighs about 3,000 pounds. So take 100 million Honda Civics launched into the stratosphere to be the equivalent of 300 billion pounds. So really just incredible numbers in terms of the mass and the power of this eruption. That's absolutely wild. And that that perspective is what I needed, like compared to the Olympic size swimming pool, the, the car, the Honda Civic yeah. um, comparison. Amazing. I have a number of questions following that. But I just wanted to know, do you know what they experienced in Fiji? Because they were so close to this. Uh, the, the big tsunami wave that I mentioned uh, hit an uninhabited island as part of Tonga. Uh, in Fiji, they did have large waves. One of the really remarkable things about this, though, is that there were so few injuries and loss of life when you think about how amazingly powerful this volcano was. As, as far as I know, there were six fatalities from this eruption, which mm-hmm. obviously those are all that's horrific. But at the same time, imagine if a volcano of this size had erupted in a densely packed coastal area, it could have been so much worse. Um, and so in, in that sense, from a human life perspective, it, it was not anywhere near as bad as it could have been. And that really is because the volcano er, eruption happened in a fairly remote location. Yeah. Um, we, I mean, everyone kind of knew about it, you know, especially scientists were talking about it right afterwards. How quickly did you realize that this was going to be a, um, a scientific challenge for you to pursue? Well, actually, to, so personally, a little backstory. At the time this happened, I was involved in a different NASA mission. We were investigating the impact of large thunderstorms on the stratosphere, but looking over the central United States. So I had an instrument that measures uh, chlorine, CLO, and chlorine nitrate on the NASA ER-2 airplane. And we were doing a mission called DCOTS, Dynamics and Chemistry of the Summer Stratosphere. And that was happening in 2021 and 2022. So I was committed to working on that. Um, I wasn't really thinking about the eruption well, I guess probably no one was until it happened and it came on our radar. We suddenly became very interested in it. Uh, and so it was a few months after the eruption. But as part of that mission, we were in Kansas and in California. We did send the ER-2 down on one flight to, to sort of chase it to see if we could catch some of the outflow from the eruption. Turns out it was just out of our reach from the aircraft. Uh, following that, we proposed to NASA to go down to the Southern Hemisphere maybe out of New Zealand or Southern Chile and make measurements with the airplane. Uh, in the end, that wasn't funded, but that, that's actually what got me involved in looking at satellite data, which is um, most of what I, I did in terms of this analysis was all satellite data. But I will tell one other story though, it doesn't involve me in terms of the rapid response to this eruption. There was a group at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, that right away after this eruption happened, just leapt into action Within the matter of days, they had people on an airplane flying out to Reunion Islands, which is an island off the coast of Madagascar, to try to catch the outflow of some of this high water vapor and sulfate as it passed by. And so what they did was to do a series of balloon launches. Uh, but because it was all so fast, they didn't have time to ship the equipment under normal means. They were carrying the instrumentation in their carry-on bags. Oh, my gosh. To, to fly out to <laughs> wow. another part of the world to make these measurements. So, uh, yeah, it was really a a neat story of people very quickly responding to this. The beauty of the satellites, of course, is they're always measuring. 
they're, they're always there making those measurements, but some of the ground-based balloon stuff, uh, you know, that took human response to act very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's a, that's an amazing story. Now, you know, let's talk about the water vapor. So this is not something that we see happen in the stratosphere. In fact, usually volcanic eruptions in general don't have a lot of water or any water vapor, uh, in them. So what does, what does that mean? Putting all this extra water vapor into the stratosphere? Yeah. I think first, just for a little context, the the stratosphere is normally a very dry place. It's, uh, maybe five, four to five parts per million uh, of water vapor in the stratosphere. It's very cold. Uh, and just so people can visualize it, the, the troposphere where we lived is the lowest region in the atmosphere. It's the region from the surface up to 12 kilometers, give or take. It depends on the latitude. And the stratosphere is the region above that from about 12 to, say, 50 or so kilometers. Uh, the thing about the stratosphere that everyone probably knows is that's where most of the ozone is located. It's about 90% of Earth's ozone layer is in the stratosphere. And that protects life on Earth from harmful ultraviolet radiation from the sun. So why does it matter if water got up there? Is, that, is it just a curiosity or does it have more significant implications? Um, and it turns out it really it did matter. So just from some perspective, the amount of water that was injected changed the background water vapor by about 10%. So a single eruption increased the water vapor in the stratosphere by 10% and potentially up close to 20% in the Southern Hemisphere initially where the eruption happened. That's a, that's a big number. Uh, and so, uh, and there's also no big loss mechanism for water in the stratosphere once it's there. So it's gonna be there for a long time. So the, the impacts of this water being there, number one, it changed the temperatures. We saw a cooling effect. There's a radiative cooling. People probably know water vapor can serve as a greenhouse gas. So it cools above it. And, and also we saw some impacts on the chemistry in the stratosphere. And that's partly related to the water vapor, partly related to the sulfate that was injected. But we saw changes in a number of different compounds, their concentrations over the course of that year after the eruption. Uh, And so, uh, and also one other cool side note is we were able to, just by tracking the water, how it moved around the globe, can test our understanding of stratospheric circulation and how air moves in the stratosphere. Right. You know, and speaking of that, so, you know, in the troposphere, and you you mentioned this where we live, um, there's a lot of moving air up and down and in all directions, really. But, you know, we have air that generally cools with height in the troposphere. And so you get sinking and then you get rising. And but that doesn't happen in the stratosphere. In the stratosphere, it's a pretty stable layer. So it's hard to imagine what's going on with the the vapors up there, whether it's water vapor or whether it's other um, other uh, chemicals. Well, yeah, so the, the beauty of the satellite data is that we, we actually do have eyes, so to speak, on the problem at all times. They, like, for example, the microwave limb sounder satellite, which is the, the data set that I used, that orbits the Earth 15 times, give or take, every day. And so uh, we do have a good idea of what's happening. So the water vapor, as it moves up, it does move pretty quickly in longitude. So in the east-west direction, it, it spread very quickly around the globe, just a matter of weeks. But in terms of how it moves in latitude, in the north-south direction, it's quite slow. And so, uh, as you say, I mean, there's just, it's not, the, the winds are much smaller than in the troposphere. It's much less turbulent. It's, it's overall, it's sort of more well-behaved and orderly, I suppose you'd say, in the stratosphere. You look at some of these plots of the water, and it's unbe- almost unbelievable how clean these lines are. And how you see the elevated water vapor in longitude kind of going, circling the globe. But in latitude, it's it's almost like somebody 
drew a line there so it couldn't pass. And then eventually you do see it move. Um, but it, it does, you are correct. It, it's, it's much less chaotic and, and disorderly. It's much more ordered and stable in the stratosphere. Yeah, very interesting. All right, we do need to take a quick break. So we come back. I want to talk more about um, what's happening in the Northern Hemisphere from this, because right now we're only in the Southern Hemisphere. So we'll take a break, and then we'll be back with Dr. David Wilmoth. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm meteorologist Jen Carfagno from the Weather Channel. I'm talking today with Dr. David Wilmoth from Harvard, and he is talking about the eruption of the Hongo volcano, and in particular, all of the water vapor that went up into the stratosphere from this eruption. And we've been talking a lot about this, the Southern Hemisphere, I think, because that's where the eruption was, or that's that's my perception. But you tell me, Dr. Wellmuth, where, so did that water vapor spread into the Northern Hemisphere as well? It, it did. So uh, it, most of it was confined to the Southern Hemisphere, but about 20% did make it to the Northern Hemisphere. So one of the things we did using the satellite data was to calculate the mass of the water. And then, so if you know the volume and the mixing ratio, we can calculate the mass. And, uh, and so we looked at that evolution of the water as a function of time over the course of 2022, that year after the eruption. And it looked like about 80% roughly stayed in the Southern Hemisphere and about 20% went to the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, and so Part of that is because, as you said, the eruption was in the southern hemisphere, so it makes sense most of it would stay there. But also it has to do with how air circulates in the stratosphere. The, the overall circulation is, is air coming up at the tropics, and then it moves out towards the mid-latitudes and the poles and then descends. That's called the Brewer-Dobson circulation. But that explains lots of things that we observe in the atmosphere. So, for example, why, is, why are ozone layers higher in the poles even though most ozone is made at the tropics. It's initially years ago, this was a big mystery, but we know now that's because of this brewer Dobson circulation because air comes up at the poles and moves out. And so for that reason, uh, there was this barrier, I suppose you'd say, to the, to the water getting to the Northern Hemisphere once it had erupted in the Southern Hemisphere. So what we saw is that most of that water, it was at 20 South, went up and then moved towards the, the Southern Pole towards Antarctica. But as you said, some definitely some made it to the northern hemisphere, and uh, but but less. Yeah, interesting. Uh, what impact does this extra water vapor in the stratosphere? What impact does it have on the ozone and ozone hole? Right. So, uh, so I think to answer that, I have to also talk about the SO two, because it wasn't just water that was injected. There was also sulfur dioxide. We know this is a common. Uh, compound that's injected from volcanic eruptions. In fact, this is normally the one we think about. It's the water that's the unusual one. When the SO2 is in the stratosphere, uh, that can, with uh, reaction with water and OH and other things, it can be converted into sulfate aerosols. Once you have those aerosols, that provides reaction surfaces for reactions to happen that may not otherwise happen. These are called heterogeneous reactions. 
So uh, one of these is, I won't go too much detail, but there's one uh, dinitrogen pentoxide, N2O5, that reacts with water that makes nitric acid. And the result of that is you have less reactive nitrogen to destroy ozone. And you also end up having more reactive chlorine and more reactive hydrogen that can destroy ozone. And so what we saw from the satellite data was because of the increased SO2 and the increased water vapor, uh, that led to changes in the concentrations of lots of other compounds. So we saw decreases in hydrogen chloride. We saw increases in chlorine monoxide, increases in OH and NO2 and NO. Uh, and the end result of all of that was that we did see some decreases in ozone. And that was partly due to chemistry and partly due to dynamics. So what I mean by dynamics is how air moves around. Because remember earlier I said that the water vapor had a cooling effect. So that led to some changes in the circulation. So uh, we had some reductions in ozone, especially over the southern hemisphere, mid-latitudes, um, reductions of at certain pressure levels, uh, up to 15% or so, uh, not the column, but a specific pressure level. For the column ozone, maybe 7%, 5 to 7% loss. So th those are significant numbers. Um, these are temporary things. You know, it's not, this is not a permanent thing. It's not going to be as long lasting as the ozone hole that we're concerned with because driven by CFCs that can have lifetimes of decades or even a hundred years. Uh, this is a shorter lived thing, but at the same time for a period of the next few years, we do need to keep a close eye on it. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and by the way, the, I think everyone um, listening who might be uh, still in school or going to school, like this makes chemistry that much more useful, right? Like these are real, <laughs> real practical applications. And um, I love it. We're, we're geeking well, out in chemistry funny. here It's too. funny you said that because, I, you know, when I was in college, I, I majored in chemistry. I, I never took an atmospheric sciences course in, in my life, but I, I had a background in chemistry. And I, I came to graduate school and I thought, just like you said, this is practical it's cool getting to work with NASA and put instruments on airplanes and go sample what's happening. It's it, So that's kind of why I got into it, honestly, is because it was a very practical application of chemistry. I think people often picture the chemist with the lab coat and the goggles and the fuming liquids and you're pouring it. And that's totally different from what I do. I, when I'm, I'm much more likely to be kind of part mechanic, part plumber, part computer scientist, and you're doing all these things, building these instruments. Uh, and so it's it's much more to it than people may picture when they picture somebody doing chemistry. Yes. No. When I uh, when I share this, I'm going to make sure to actually put that in the uh, in the message because this this is awesome to and you know encourage maybe folks who have an interest in chemistry but they're not sure how they would apply it. Like this is real life every day. Yeah. Um, you know, if we look up at the sky and someone's got to think about what's happening up there, thirty miles up. Um, yeah. Actually, I have so many different directions I want to go in, yeah. but. Um, you talked about how high it, it the the plume went, and I saw one one report that the whole maybe not the whole amount of volume, but at some point materials went as high as fifty six kilometers, which I think is up into the mesosphere. So did that happen? Right. And, and like what 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 happens there? And are you studying that? Well, yeah, I, I saw the same thing. So uh, the satellites do measure that high, um, and, and so that really is an incredible altitude to think about. So it's like 35 miles up into the air. I actually saw other reports that suggested some of the water vapor made it all the way to space. So um, it, again, that doesn't necessarily have any major impact on, on us here on earth from a human health perspective or anything, but it's just a cool fact. And it goes to show how powerful this eruption was. Another way to, to put this into 
context. You know, earlier I was talking about the 300 billion pounds and the, the fact that you imagine like 100 million Honda Civics being launched 26 kilometers up or, or 16 miles. Like for some perspective on how high that is, when you think about firing a gun, like a, a, a rifle, maybe if you shoot a bullet, it could go one to two miles, one to two miles for that little piece of lead. So, but if you're talking about launching 300 billion pounds, 16 miles, or even 35 miles to the peak, straight up, it, it's just unbelievable amount of power from this volcanic eruption. How would we compare that to a rocket launch? For example, I'm thinking about the Artemis launch, you know, that has, uh, that we were just watching and, you know, what's going on for future planning. Can you compare it to a rocket launch? Uh, that may be a little bit trickier to, for, for me to do. I, I, in terms of a nuclear bomb, I can say that I know it's more powerful than any nuclear bomb that's ever gone off. And, uh, and, and certainly from, it was estimated that hundreds of times more powerful than the bomb that was dropped in Hiroshima back in World War II. So from that perspective, it was just this powerful, powerful explosion, bomb-like explosion, really. So maybe it's a little different from a rocket launch, but uh, still super, just again, just the power and awe. I think if anyone near it would have just been, been amazed. How long do you think we will see impacts of this in the stratosphere? And, and maybe, and well, I have a follow-up question to that. Yeah. So yeah, first question, just in, in the stratosphere. Right. So there, there's two parts. There's the water and there's the sulfate. So the sulfate layer descend a little bit relative to the water, and that will make its way out of the atmosphere a little faster. The water vapor will be there for a while. I mean, it, it's probably going to, at some level, be elevated for 10 years. Uh, and it'll slowly come down. But again, it comes back to how the, the air circulates in the stratosphere and it makes its way forward. So the slow way out of the stratosphere is to just eventually make its way back to the troposphere from circulation. The slightly faster way is that you may, some of that water may freeze in the Antarctic polar vortex and just sediment out. That'd be a slightly faster way. But the, the estimates the models are predicting are we're, we're looking at probably a decade, give or take, of elevated water vapor. Uh, and, and that will come down with time. It's not going to stay as high as it was. But what we found for just looking at 2022, for that first year, it, there was almost no reduction at all. It, it pretty much all just stayed in the stratosphere for that first year. It didn't move around, and it made its, a lot of it made its way down to the, the southern hemisphere pole, but it's still there. If sometimes thunderstorms will punch up above the tropopause into the stratosphere, if that happens, would they be able to sort of tap into that moisture? And could that change maybe rainfall rates or potential, you know, in, in a given thunderstorm? Um, you're saying the, the water vapor from hunger being available? for Yes, a yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't think so. I think, so first of all, the, this water is really high up. It, it's kind of, it's hot. So most convection that you're talking about, uh, it does penetrate the tropopause and can get maybe a few kilometers into the stratosphere. Uh, but the, the bulk of the water from this eruption is higher than that. So uh, let's say, you know, probably at most you might see elevated water from convection up to maybe 19 kilometers or so, whereas the peak from the Hungatunga was 26 kilometers. So it's, it's above it. It is slowly making its way down as it goes poleward. But of course, you're less likely to have thunderstorms as you go uh, poleward. So I don't think that particular thing is a concern uh but we we certainly do i mean in fact i've worked on that exact problem thinking about convection and, and, and looking at the water vapor penetrated into the stratosphere so that's a very interesting problem in and of itself but i think separate from the hunger eruption 
Okay. Well, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, I've got saved the, the two biggest questions for last. One is, is there any impact on our weather? And uh, we'll also talk about if we could ever see anything like this again. So okay. we'll be right back. We are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm talking with Dr. David Wilmoth about the Honga volcano and the huge eruption that sent water vapor into the stratosphere and about the impacts of that. And we've talked about the impacts on the stratosphere itself and the the ozone. And the- Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The ozone hole, but I do want to talk about the impact on weather uh, down on the ground. Is there any, could this potentially contribute to warming? And, you know, we're sitting right now in January of 2024, just coming off of globally our warmest year on record. Do you think this could have had any kind of consequence? So that's an interesting question. So initially, when the water was injected, there were some early reports that had suggested that we might see a warming at the surface from the water. Again, water is a greenhouse gas. And this would be the first eruption in history that we're aware of that would have done that. Normally, we think of volcanoes as doing the opposite. When you have these sulfate aerosols, they actually have a cooling effect at the surface. They warm the stratosphere. But water is the opposite. It would warm the surface and cool the stratosphere. Uh, And so despite those early concerns, what the data seem to be showing is that it really wasn't a big effect. There may be some modest, very slight warming, but it doesn't seem like, again, mostly because of the altitude, it's so high that we're not really seeing much of a warming effect at the surface from the water. Um, and so in that sense, it's probably not anything to do with why we may have had a warmer year uh, last year or the year before. Uh, but again, we'll keep an eye on it. But uh, it, it, it seems like that's not really a concern. You know, often when we think of volcanic eruptions, we, we think of cooling happening. Um, right because of the materials in the, well, the, the troposphere, not necessarily the stratosphere, right? So um, is there any of that involved either? Yeah, so this was interesting because the, so the sulfate that was in, this SO2 that led to sulfate formation did have a, it's a cooling effect at the surface and a warming effect in the stratosphere and the water vapor does the opposite. So the fact that we had sulfate in water meant that there was a little bit of a competition uh, we know from the Mount Pinatubo eruption in 1991, when there was mostly just a sulfate effect, we did see cooling at the surface of more than a degree. Uh, and in fact, that's one of the reasons people are thinking about this idea of geoengineering as well. Let's just, you know, do a man-made volcano effectively, inject sulfate into the stratosphere on purpose to reflect that sunlight back. Uh, Hunga was a little different, though, because it didn't just have the sulfate, it also had the water. And so those two things were at odds with each other. Uh, one has a warming effect, one has a cooling effect. Uh, in the end, the water went out. We did see a net cooling in the stratosphere. Uh, and there was some warming below. But again, I, it, it was not significant enough to lead to any uh, measurable uh, increase in surface temperatures that I'm aware of. And if so, it was very small. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, just thinking back about past eruptions, almost always there were some kind of big ones, the Pinatubo. There's almost yeah. some kind of cooling you know, right. connection. So that's maybe right. in this case, the water 
mitigated that for lack of a better way to describe it. with you know, in the atmospheric chemistry world, uh, does, is this something that you ever anticipated happening? <laughs> uh, so certainly, volcanic eruptions. We know that these things have they happen periodically. They impact stratospheric chemistry. In fact, I, I think an argument could be made that the single biggest risk to the stratospheric ozone, in terms of potential, like an overnight change, could be a volcanic eruption that had halogen content in it. Imagine a volcano that had HCl in it, and suddenly there was a lot more chlorine in the stratosphere. Not to say that that's super likely, because usually the water vapor does take care of a lot of the HCl before it gets into the stratosphere, but it definitely has that possibility. So volcanoes are certainly certainly something we're very much aware of, uh, but this one was really special because of the water injected. Um, There was a, a NASA document that was put together a few years ago called the Volcano Readiness Document, and uh, many people in the community worked on that. And, and and you kind of look back at that document now and it never, even though I think it was 67 pages long, is never one word of mention of a volcano that was rich in water. It was all about SO2 because that's, that was our frame of reference. So in that sense, the water injected from this really did make it special and different. Uh, and so, um, and again, that's partly because of where it was located. This was out on an island in the ocean. Uh, and so, in that sense, it's probably less likely to happen. But in terms of um, a volcano of this magnitude erupting, I actually just recently read that, uh, this wasn't my work, but someone else's was saying that there's 42 potential volcanoes around the globe right now that have the potential to erupt with the same magnitude and power as the hunger eruption. So in, from a, a power and a, you know explosivity standpoint, this was not unique. It just happened to be the one that, that went off you know, in, in the modern instrumentation era. But there's been other very large ones in, in the past. They just don't happen with high frequency. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but again, this one was special because of the water. That was really what made it different and unexpected. Yeah. And and well, and that we had measurements of what happened as well. You know, That's going right. back, you know, and centuries and millennia, you know, we didn't have measurements back then. And I no. do want to ask more about the measurements. So I saw there was a... a a type of craft called ASTER, that's probably an acronym. What is that and and how was that used and what else did you use to measure? Uh, so do you mean AURA? I'm, I'm not sure uh, ASTER is. I thought it was A-S-T-E-R, no? I saw no. something in, in the research somewhere that- Okay, um, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, maybe, I'm not, I'm not yeah. familiar with that. But, yeah. uh, but the, in terms of the satellite data that we use, we primarily use an instrument called, uh, it, the acronym is MLS, it stands for Microwave limb sounder. That's a, an instrument that's on board the, a NASA or a satellite, and that measures the microwave emissions from Earth's atmosphere. It's measuring all the time, and and so that can report uh, concentrations of a number of different species as well as temperature, and so that, that was the one we used the most. There's other satellite measurements. There's also uh, some ground-based measurements. There's balloon measurements. Um, this was this study that, that I did um, recently about this volcano using the MLS data is actually, it's a little different for me in the sense that uh, I actually didn't make the measurements myself. Uh, So this is a data product NASA produces, and there's a fantastic team at JPL that puts out these data. Uh, Michelle Santee is the one of the ones who makes the chlorine measurements, just really fantastic work. So, um, you know, I'm a user of the data, but, you know, typically I, I make my own measurements with the aircraft or in the laboratory. But in this case, um, this was actually 
me using satellite data that were generated by a team of people affiliated with NASA. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. Uh, would you would you consider this kind of like a like a landmark um, scientific study that you you will be like a highlight of your career? Uh, <laughs> that's. I mean, tough to, to me, answer. this yeah. this this volcanic eruption itself is just so dramatic. But I know you're involved in many other things. Yeah, it involves a lot of things, and I, I think uh, you know there's a lot of people working on this. I mean, I'm, honestly, I'm very honored that you chose me to come on the show because there's probably a hundred other people who could have been sitting in the seat having this conversation with you. There's a lot of people who are just super excited about this volcano. Not everyone's looked at the. The, the, my focus is more on the chemistry is different. I don't mean to say 100 people are doing that. Actually, not a lot of people are doing that. But just the different aspects because of the, you know, the shockwave part and the altitude part uh, and the lightning part and the, the water vapor part and the chemistry part and the potential impact on climate. You're drawing in people from so many different areas of expertise who are exploring this from different angles. Uh, and I think a lot of people would say, you know, maybe not from a career perspective, but just from a what's happened that got you excited scientifically? I think a lot of people would say this is really at the top of the list or very close to it. It's a really exciting thing to study. And, and you go to these scientific meetings and it's just unbelievable how many people are working on this and, and trying to better understand this because it wasn't expected and it, it did catch everybody by surprise a little bit. And, uh, and it's been a good test of our models and our understanding of the, of the atmosphere. Yeah, you know, a lot of meteorologists are inspired to become meteorologists because a big, big blizzard hit their community mm -hmm. or a tornado, et cetera. And this feels like one of those kinds of events that might inspire new scientists or chemists down the road to right. I, that's a great study point. the atmosphere. Yeah, I, th I think I totally agree with that. I, th I think that's an excellent point. Yeah. Uh, all right. So I do want to wrap it up. Um, but... I want to just ask you about the weather, since this is Weather Geeks. Uh, <laughs> so you you live in eastern Massachusetts and in Cambridge, right? Um, it's been an interesting winter. What do you think about this winter so far? You really haven't had, you know, a, a true kind of old-fashioned New England winter. Yeah. So, well, I, I, I work in Cambridge, uh, which is just outside of Boston. I actually live in a town called North Andover, about 25 miles north. One of the things that's interesting is how much more snow we get just 25 miles north than what we get in Cambridge, and part of that has to do with proximity to the ocean and and, and other things. But um, yeah, it's it's. I'm not a New Englander originally, so even though we've got less snow than normal, it's still so much more than I got when I was growing up that uh, you know it still feels like a lot to me. Uh, but but yeah, it's it's not. We are having less snow than normal, and I, I think I, I think back to 2015. Not to say this year is going to be that way, but we had this really quiet January. And then suddenly in February, we got a foot of snow every single week for like seven weeks straight. So I don't think we're in the clear yet, <laughs> but, for uh, sure. but yeah, we have had less than normal. Yes, for sure. You, that um, is a great way to sum it up because nor'easter season kind of begins at the end of January and runs through March. So there's still plenty of time to, uh, right. to get into that. Well, Dr. David Wilmot, thank you so much here. I really enjoyed this discussion. I'm, I'm excited to share it on uh, the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was fun. All right. We'll talk to you again sometime soon. Next time we need to uh, touch on the uh, atmosphere chemistry of our stratosphere. We know who to call. Thanks, David. <laughs> Sounds good. Bye-bye. And thank you all for listening to and watching this edition of the Weather Geeks Podcast.